That is A Heartache, A Shadow, A Lifetime by Dave Mason, formerly of Traffic. And this is a 45-minute podcast, intentionally 45 minutes, on my reflections, or of my reflections, of 45 years of formal New Testament scholarship, and a kind of personal reflection and um, note of uh, future hope for the study of the New Testament in formal or traditional academic terms. It comes under the tripartite heading, a shadow, a heartache, a lifetime. And we begin with a heartache. In 1968, the fall of that year, I became the student of John Howard Sheets, spelled S-C-H-U-T-Z, newly minted PhD from Yale, but this was now at the University of North Carolina. And he introduced me to the broad strokes of formal German Protestant New Testament scholarship, and it was a bath in a fascinating and uh, most absorbing field. 
Two years later, I became the student of Dieter Georgi, who supervised uh, an undergraduate dissertation on Hellenism and Christian origins at uh, Harvard College. And through Dieter Georgi, um, one was um, strongly resourced, as the English say, by uh, Christer Stendhal and Helmut Kuster. Soon after that, a period of study in England at Nottingham gave me the chance to be the first um, formal graduate student of James Dunn, Jimmy Dunn, James D.G. Dunn, and that uh, brought me into a new perspective on the historical Jesus, or a somewhat old perspective as it turned out, and the first beginnings of Jimmy's thought on the what became known later as the new perspective on Paul. After almost three decades, something like that, of uh, pastoral ministry in the Episcopal Church, I think it was about two decades actually, uh, we returned to this field and I became, as it turned out, the last um, formal international doctoral student of Jürgen Moltmann at Tübingen in the area of New Testament theology with a particular focus on Ernst Käsemann about whom a dissertation, uh, I wrote one, and uh, became close to Professor Kazeman, and uh, before he died, was the recipient of a powerful series of letters, a correspondence that has since been published, mostly reflecting on Herr Kazeman's experience with the Gestapo and as a confessing church resistor to Adolf Hitler in the 1930s, with some overlap on his reflections on a kind of radical uh, New Testament scholarship and approach to both Christ and St. Paul. Looking back on it now, and I was really fortunate to have some of the very, very finest and highest minds in the study of the New Testament. Let me say a few things. First, the issue of heartache it became very clear as soon as the fall of 1968 that most of the formal academic people who were studying the New Testament, let alone the phenomenology of religion and a number of other issues at that time in the growing field of religious studies, as it is now called, were working out something psychodynamic. It was not a neutral um, exercise. It was not a um, a disattached contest for the truth, but it was in fact a heavily psychological uh, wrestling uh, of these uh, men and some women, but mostly men in my experience, to hold on to the roots of their faith, which had almost in all cases been formed in evangelical Christian parsonages, homes of missionaries, or strongly pious evangelical families. Not all, but 90-90% of the people to whom I was exposed, both doctoral students and um, academics um, with doctorates, that these uh, people were in fact not playing with a, uh, what's called a, uh, what's the word, Uh, their hand was off, (laughs) Uh, something was wrong, and uh, almost everyone was sort of gravitating towards working out, full of all sorts of um, conflicts concerning the kind of uh, religious 
sort of heavy-handed backgrounds which they'd experienced, which made them actually um, go into the field, and they were on a quest. Now, of course, we're all on a quest. I was on a quest. Everybody was on a quest. You're on a quest. But the problem with it was it um, rendered their scholarship, in my opinion, in most cases, um, suspect. Uh, and that's just not sort of a liberal academic who says, oh, you know, the study of religion, how can you know, how can you be invested in a in something that is um, so subjective in any event? There's no pure science or pure research going on. That That is not the issue because you find the same thing in other academic fields. Academic people are often hugely um, um, working working from somewhere. They're, they're coming from somewhere. And it's often uh, anger or it's a control problem or it's uh, all sorts of um, ways you can analyze it. And it's not a cheap shot. It's actually the case. I speak as someone who's been doing this for 45 years and uh, had a great deal of experience with uh, academic people in all sorts of fields. And uh, the uh, power of the psychic past over the kind of scholarship that I saw, with some exceptions, uh, including some of my own teachers, was almost uh, was the heartache. This was the heartache. One soon saw that the more a liberal, end of quote, end of quote, in the theological sense, and the more um, sort of... Um, iconoclastic the scholar was, you could almost guarantee that person had come out of Plymouth Brethrenism or had come out of, uh, you know, uh, CMA, some very strongly uh, impressive, um, impressioning religious background that had caused them to react in some way. So I began very quickly to see that this was really a kind of psychic morass of people who were tilting at windmills all over the place. So the heartache was a personal one. Now, Professor Schutz, who admitted that this was what he was working out of, uh, had such uh, intelligence. Uh, he His intelligence uh, and his uh, grasp of his material was so well-versed, and he'd studied in Germany. And the Germans tend to be the most impressive, even to this day, because they are systematic and they really are required by PhDs that can take as long as eight or nine years, not fecklessness or not because of academic punishment or power plays, but simply because they are required to know so much. The uh, uh, Schutz, uh, John Sheets uh, was extremely well-versed, and uh, Dieter Georgi knew everything there was to know about his particular field within that study, as did others. I always felt that Professor Stendhal was grinding an axe right from the moment. But these things are, uh, you know, these are living people who have given their lives to this. But it just was an impression that was um, certified again and again and again, my heartache, that uh, the large uh, majority of religious scholars uh, with whom I interacted were working something out. Now, again, that's not unique to religious studies. All you need to do is go into an English department or to a department of such and such studies. And you'll see that people are working something out, and often there's an enormous amount of psychic anger that is going on into the field. Um, however, it doesn't make it any less than a heartache. Now, the shadow is the second uh, point, and this is the point that... The field of New Testament scholarship is, in fact, very shadowy because the sources are very limited. Now, let me say a little bit about that. In other words, you are dealing here with historical personages and historical events and situations that were not very well attested 
They're attested more than secular people want to say, and sometimes more than uh, radical uh, New Testament scholars uh, wish to uh, portray it. There is a very high degree of attestation as over or in comparison with, with other certain classical figures or even, say, the historical Buddha, uh, where the attestation has to come entirely from um, you know, sources that were put on paper often much uh, after. Um, it's different in the case of Muhammad. Uh, but the fact of um, the sources creates a kind of um, circular uh, situation in New Testament scholarship because, and I'm going to say a little bit more about this, because the uh, direct, there's, there's almost no attestation directly uh, concerning the Jesus of Nazareth, the rabbi, out of the Gospels. There's some, obviously, the Apocryphal Gospels and certain inscriptions and, you know, Suetonius or Livy or Tacitus, I think it is actually. Um, and there are certain, um, what is it, Josephus? I mean, I can go over the whole list, but there is more attestation than people want to say, but you're dealing with a very um, constrained and um, limited amount of literary sources in St. Paul, obviously, and in the case of uh, of Christ himself, and then as relating to John and the other writers of the New Testament. So you're dealing with sort of a shadow, and th that means that the scholarship is a kind of wheel, a wheel in the sky. Um, it goes around and around and around and around because people want to study this because they're t driven by psychic conflicts and desires to make sense of what they've learned as children or what they have rejected as children but don't wish to completely reject because it wants to reject completely your father or mother because they're your father and your mother. I mean, you can't do that, right? You you have to find some kind of um, situation, some kind of accommodation with father and mother, especially with father if you're a young man and you're studying the New Testament. So you you're going to study some of this material, but what are you going to say when there's nothing really left to study? So what you do is you pull in what the Germans call Ansätze, or approaches from other disciplines, uh, and you use these to sort of be a current uh, um, link in or hook in to the limited sources you have, which are the Gospels and the letters of St. Paul. And so... Um, you take uh, approaches from uh, other fields and you sort of import them as sort of the new thing. And um, I saw this very much at Tübingen where a woman was trying to work so hard on a particular issue and uh, all she could finally come up with, a uh, very brilliant graduate student, was uh, simply a new ansatz, that is a new approach to an old thing. And that's really not pure science. That's kind of more like cultural uh, a sort of a cultural window or a cultural wind that might give you a little insight because you're trying to understand something that happened a long time ago and if the sources are limited and it's all been studied to death by very, very thorough um, philologists and students, especially in uh, the German universities, what are you going to do? So uh, you find yourself really having to sort of come up with things to study. So there's kind of a shadow now, it's also a shadow in relationship to two other aspects of it. Now, these are the more substantial aspects. It's not only a shadow in the scholarship, because the work has been done. You would far better be uh, using your time mastering the uh, approach of an Adolf von Harnack, who really understood the development of uh, dogma in the early and later, uh, and even the 16th century Christian church. You would do very well to read that person who has written the best uh, biographical study of Marcion or, you know, whoever you're interested in, and really uh, understand and really get to the absolute bottom of some a very authoritative person from the 19th century or the early 20th century, but you don't. 
you feel like you have to sort of come up with something new about the old sources. So the shadowy character, let me just say this, however, is even more shadowy, dunkel, as the Germans say, dark than what I've said. <clears throat> Paul is an extraordinarily difficult figure to get your head around. Now, I'm speaking to Paul and scholars of whom, you know, you may not be one, and the ones who are actually in what they call the guild aren't going to be listening to this podcast. But the Pauline scholars have a very, very hard task if this is what they really wish to do, because Paul is a an impossible figure to fully understand. He is... Um, <clears throat> He had this uh, very um, scholastic uh, rabbinic uh, training. He then had an overwhelming religious experience. This religious experience caused him to reinterpret everything highly personalistically, but because he was an extremely well-educated and a very thoughtful, rational person, he sort of had to do a redo on everything he'd learned before, and it's a very um, hard thing to sort of um, distinguish uh, the old Paul from the new Paul, the autobiographical Paul from the sort of polemical evangelistic Paul, and the pastoral Paul. He has this very deep pastoral heart and uh, reaching out to people, and he's a very human, humane human being, passionate, and yet he's... Um, I find it, you know, we we got this back with Albert Schweitzer and the, um, the his work on Paul as a mystic. It's just about impossible to make sense of Paul because there are four or five major themes there which are pulling against one another. In my opinion, um, two people have made sense of Paul. One is Martin Luther, and Martin Luther didn't make sense of all of Paul, but in my opinion, Martin Luther, from an existential point of view, because he was in a way the first completely existential Christian theologian that actually wrote things down, <clears throat> Luther understood aspects of Paul's understanding of the human being and the extraordinary conflict with which one is faced between what one wants to do and one ought to do or what one is driven to do vis-a-vis -vis one, what one's duty is regarded to be. And talk about the conflict of human nature. Uh, this is deeply in Paul, but it's not the only thing that's in Paul. And therefore, and there's even some conflict with that in other aspects of Paul. And so... Um, Luther, as Althaus, I think, said, uh, probably he went further than Paul, and yet he probably uh, is a little better than Paul uh, because he takes one major but not the only major theme in St. Paul's uh, thought, and he magnifies it in an existential direction and causes this combustion of the Protestant Reformation in 1517. Uh, and this... Um, means that if you really want to understand Paul, Paul is really uh, so, con there's so much uh, intellectual conflict or tension is the better word. There's so much tension in Paul and tension is uh, very hard to really quantify or uh, put a rational schema over. So Paul is really uh, very shadowy. Uh, I said there were two that have uh, understood Paul. The second, I think, is Roberto Rossellini, the director. I don't know if you've seen the it's all in Italian. It'll come out one of these days, but it's not out yet. But um, I was able to see long parts of his extremely lengthy um, television drama in Italian called The Acts of the Apostles. And uh, there is one scene uh, in uh, which Paul, uh, who's very ill, is being carried uh, right out of a sandstorm on his way to uh, an Arabian city uh, by Barnabas. 
that so completely takes your breath away because it so captures as you see it. You say to yourself, this is probably the way it really was. This is the way it actually was. This is, this is what it was like when Paul and Barnabas had these extraordinary experiences and they would go to towns and there was nobody there who was a Christian in the way that they were seeking to make Christians out of tremendous sincerity. And uh, you see Rossellini's, there's a scene in it, as I said, in Ate Daily Apostoli, that is utterly convincing incredible. There are many other uh, pictures of Paul in literature, art, and in some scholarship, but uh, Paul is a shadow. Now, I would find that, uh, and I'm going to conclude on the note of uh, Christ himself, uh, Christ is also shadowy, but in a different way, which I'll get to. But I will say this, that um, because there's so little, as I said, attestation or corroborating or parallel or contemporary texts or written materials that relate to Christ. There are some, and if people don't like Christianity or have inward conflict, they erase them from the record. There's huge controversy about a passage in Josephus concerning Christ. There's huge controversy about the passage, and I think it's in Tacitus. I always can't remember if it's in Suetonius, but the passage about Christ there, I think it's in Tacitus. People get, it's unbelievable, because these things are, A, there's so little of them, and secondly, people have such strong ideas about Christ and about Christianity as it relates to usually themselves, and this is something I won't uh, retreat from. The, The heartache is so strong that the shadow uh, becomes even more shadowy. In the place of Christ, there is, in fact, however, quite a bit. I mean, there are uh, three biographical books and a bi- one biographical reflection, John. And so, uh, and plus, there's some reminiscences which were uh, communicated by the actual actors and protagonists to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians and in a few other places, I think in 1 Peter. So you are not completely alone. There's actually a lot of material, but because... Um, the material is uh, transmitted. There are issues of the transmission that make it shadowy. I'm going to talk about more of that in a minute. But I, I, I've always thought that the end of John Carpenter's uh, horror film, which um, I've the dark something or other. It's the one where there's a there's a chemical kind of solution in a, a laboratory below a church. Remember Alice Cooper is in it. She plays a he plays a zombie, and Donald Pleasance plays a priest, I think. And there's some uh, some clergy who are studying kind of a chemical solution underneath a, a church in London, is it or is it Italy? Uh, that uh, Rome uh, that. Uh, has something to do with the devil. I think it's called Prince of Darkness. That's it. It's called Prince of Darkness, and it's very good. But at the end, it has a very disturbing ending, which seems to be from the future. You've had this gothic um, religious slash sort of Nigel Nealish scientific uh, scenario, which is very powerful. And then there's kind of a, you receive a message from the future and what appears to be a kind of video transmission from the future, but it's garbled. I, I think I've, I've seen the movie many times. I've never been able, I cannot write down and explain to you what happens in the garbled transmission, which I think is from the future at the very end. But I think I understand it. But what is uh, so striking about it is is it, it, it puzzles you because the transmission is garbled intentionally by the director, by John Carpenter, and the writer. I think he wrote it himself under the name of Nigel Neal or something like that. The point is you are completely um, buffaloed by a garbled transmission. And the problem with the shadowy character of Jesus is that quite a bit of what Jesus taught and did 
is um, is complicated by transmissional problems. That is to say, uh, is this the real text? Did he say it? Did somebody else interfere? Did somebody else try to change it? Did somebody else not change it? Um, how does it compare with the same story that's told another way, slightly, in another gospel? So you have transmission problems. So at its very best, New Testament scholarship is uh, something that is essentially garbled. Even the study of St. John, as Rudolf Bultmann uh, said, what was the, you know, Rudolf Bultmann took the Gospel of John and then tore it apart, uh, completely uh, took it apart from top to bottom, reorganized it, and proposed uh, in his very, very um, serious scholarly book on John, the Gospel of John, he proposed an entirely new order, theology and order for John. And um, the joke used to always be, uh, Dr. Sheets told me this in 1968, that um, when I took a when I was studying this under in a sort of tutorial with him, um, the story is that there in Ephesus and John, the elder, the evangelist, is uh, has got all his uh, scribes writing down different uh, chapters of John's gospel. And they're sort of in a room in a cave type of thing. And then a gust of wind comes into this room where they all are. And all of their... Uh, 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 codicil, I mean, all of their uh, papyri are blown from their desks and are sitting in complete disorder on the ground. And they say, oh, John, what will we do? How will we? Uh, everything is completely shot to you know where by this wind that's blown everything on the ground. And he says, don't worry, uh, my sons. Um, Rudolf Bultmann will come along in 1947 years or whatever it is, 1960 years, and uh, and put it all, glue it all back together for us. Ha, ha, ha. Well, um, uh, transmission problems cause New Testament scholarship to be a shadow. Now, things are moving right along. What have I said? Uh, I've said that, uh, remember, 45 minutes for 45 years. I've said that the study of religion in general and the study of the New Testament, which was my own uh, chosen field right from the beginning in a formal sense, is uh, a heartache because you discover that the large majority of the um, scholars are themselves working something out that is so, and it so affects their approach to this material that you, um, it's, this has been said by many, many people, but um, I can, I'm living testimony of it. I mean, I was trying to work something out, although I had not come from an evangelical background. That was the one difference. I had never actually met an evangelical Christian in my entire life until my second year at Chapel Hill, which would have been the spring of 1970 during the Kent State demonstrations, I met personally directly my first ever evangelical Christian in as a sophomore at Chapel Hill during a demonstration, and I, I could talk about that. That's He became a friend, and I know him to this day, but what a shock. I'd never met anyone who seemed to express his Christianity in the way that this man did. And at that point... Um, uh, I began to realize, oh my gosh, so much of these people, not this man who spoke to me during the rally, but so many of these teachers, if you actually ask them, are coming out of you know Bible colleges. That's true to this day. The, the most famous New Testament scholar today at Chapel Hill, very, very famous man. Uh, if you actually look at his curriculum vitae, he's coming out of a of conservative evangelical background. So, it, And those people are generally often in tremendous conflict, you know, like that movie director. What's the movie director who does all the horror films? Um, Wes Craven. You know, Wes Craven went to Wheaton College, and he had a – his parents wouldn't let him go to a movie till he was like 22. And he's now, you know, has spent 25 years sort of – 
thumbing his nose in his uh, movies at this world. I don't think he's doing that probably today because the older you get, the more acquiescent and hopefully accepting. You know, this is the hand you were dealt. My own natural father, who um, became a Harvard PhD in the field of uh, comparative uh, zoology and biology. Uh, his father was an evangelical parson, and he and all the brothers uh, left it with tremendous re reaction and resistance because they, and, and it came out in everything that my dad did. His hyper-rationalism was actually a, a, a direct uh, response and uh, aversion and repulsion to his father's uh, hyper-non-rationalism as he saw it. So this is a, it stamps America, you know, it stamps the world, it certainly stamps our politics, it stamps, you know, everybody's in reaction to something, but when you see it in formal academia, it's a heartache, and it really, it was disillusioning, until I got to Germany, where there was a slightly different uh, tradition, uh, a, a tradition of the highest thorough and exhaustive scholarship um, uh, which um, was not, not which was not coming out of a reaction, but actually had been birthed or had been um, then gestated within the uh, traditional Lutheran formal state church, and that was a horse of a different color. Uh, nevertheless, there I once again saw the shadow. If I didn't see the heartache, I saw the shadow, and the shadow was oh my gosh, oh, this uh, question of Saint Paul is just too darn fraught. You just can't get your head around that he's just there's too much tension, and when there's that much tension, you have to. You have to really stand back and simply, uh, you can't integrate it. There's no way to systematize it. And uh, therefore, it's a kind of a shadow. You're sort of thrown back on pure observation. And because other people have done it far better than y'all ever do it, you might as well just go into another field. Now, um, the shadowy character of Christ, not quite as much. And I've spent a lot of time in the Holy Land with Mary. And uh, I do find whenever I'm on the Sea of Galilee and uh, in Jerusalem that I find a kind of historic at a station, uh, not in the state of Israel, which is my host when I go there. I mean, everyone's host, uh, but in the actual sites. But let me now finish with a few words so we'll get this under time. And you can listen to Dave Mason again, because that's really a great song. That song, I think, uh, came out in 72 or 73. And I remember listening to this song, A Heartache, A Shadow, A Lifetime, in my uh, in my dorm room at... Uh, Harvard College, and then uh, some of his songs, Dave Mason just electrified me in a wonderful summer trip with Lloyd Fonville and many of his friends uh, uh, in Islesboro, Dark Harbor, Maine. So Dave Mason is very much a part of my own, and here it was, I was listening to, you know, Helmut Kister and listening to Dave Mason, so it makes sense to me. Now, um, the third uh, final uh, point is, where then is there hope? Well, I'll say this. I think the only direction forward for New Testament scholarship that is actually substantial uh, lies first in the study of uh, Jesus. Uh, Christ himself is the great uh, exception. He, he is, wouldn't you know, he is the great, great uh, bottomless mystery. He is the unplumbable um, well. Uh, there, You can never... Uh, study his works and his deeds enough because so much of what is recorded, despite transmission problems, is deep. I mean, it's like Prince of Darkness, that ending. I didn't know quite what was being stated at the very ending with its transmission <laughs> at the end of that movie, but I knew something very major because I just, it's, it chills, it chills you. 
Prince of Darkness. It just chills you. Well, in a different way, uh, the word of uh, many of the words and the expressions and the attitudes of uh, Jesus of Nazareth uh, strike me as being worthy of study to this day, after 45 years of it. And I think um, that the current mood in New Testament scholarship is to really focus on the Wirkungsgeschichte, or the history of the effects of New Testament scholarship or New Testament texts, as much as studying the texts themselves, because there's so little else that can be said. The sources have been run dry. So currently what people are saying in the year 2013, that the sort of wave of the future is to take New Testament ideas or New Testament texts and see how were they received, say, in the 5th century, or how were they received in the early scholastic period of theology in Paris, or how were they uh, received uh, certainly in the 18th century Enlightenment uh, in Germany and in the Anglo-Saxon countries. Uh, uh, this is of great interest, how were they received, but I want to go, because these, these words of Christ, you take the Sermon on the Mount. And there's both mystery and unpenetrability, impenetrability, and there is extraordinary resource for the current world. If only we could take the Sermon on the Mount today and um, hear it in connection with drone warfare or with, um, uh, re, re, uh, what is it, uh, when they kidnap people, remandings, retentions, detention, uh, there's a word, renditions. If we could think about it in relationship to hunger strikers in Guantanamo or NSA surveillance, uh, it would not be uh, improper. Uh, as Kazaman himself understood, he was fortified by the letter to the Hebrews when he sat in the prison cell of the Gestapo in 1934, was it? Um, or 36, I think it was 34 in Gelsenkirchen. Uh, th these words uh, from the New Testament uh, have, uh, uh, and from the book of Revelation, have an astounding um, applicability and uh, resonance and uh, echo and impact when you read them in connection with the crisis that you may be involved with, whether it's... Um, Issues of identity politics, you know, as in um, in Christ there is no male, female, bond or free, black or white, Jew or Gentile. You know, you take that and you apply it to identity politics and what do you come up with? But no one can do that today. But it would be very useful to do that with anything, with all the th issues I mentioned earlier with, you know, Edward Snowden, you name it. And uh, so the real uh, task of New Testament scholarship, which is uh, a shadow when it comes to the sources, there's enough to go on that we do well to see how does this relate to what I'm actually going through myself, both personally with, you know, this person or that person or this relationship or that relationship, or what I am experiencing in conscription or uh, Syria, you know, today. These are, um, and because there's a kind of embargo on it, which is very arbitrary and unfortunate. It's simply arbitrary. We're cutting ourselves off from something that the Christian community actually stewards, which is a uh, series of teachings and utterances by someone who in his own way was every bit as, uh, was every bit as uh, profound and, uh, and counterintuitive and unusual in his understandings and in his transcendent understandings of realities from taxation to adultery to... Uh, to uh, hope to death um, and uh, the dying process. Uh, everyone, someone who is just as perceptive on this as uh, Siddhartha in the year 544 plus BC or, or um, 
or the prophet uh, in the 7th century of our era. Why not consider this? And the people who generally have the best uh, kind of handle on uh, the application are not people in sociology and politics because of all sorts of current caveats and constrictions, which are really arbitrary and need to really, one day they'll slip away again, but they prevent a dialogue between this very great thinker, uh, they embargo something that actually ought to trade between two countries that ought not to be embargoed and blockaded. And uh, the best way, really, the, the people that often see the relationship of Christ to um, the real problems of their lives uh, today and tomorrow, and this is where the hope lies, it's a kind of Wirkungsgeschichte or effect history, E-F-F-E-C-T, are the artists, and this is something I've said before in the podcast. I mean, you can learn <clears throat> as much about uh, uh, Christ, uh, Christ's uh, ministry uh, and his love for the loveless and his charity in the deepest possible sense to the troubled and what we today call the marginalized, rightly so. You could, uh, there's a chapter in The Possessed by uh, Dostoevsky. I like to use the old title for it. There's a chapter that takes place outside a church an interchange between a beggar young woman who is begging and a rather aristocratic, wealthy Russian lady that is as deeply convicting and as profoundly moving, especially in the Christian attitude of the wealthy, well-born Russian lady. Her deep internalized Christianity in the situation is depicted with such power by Dostoevsky and the possessed that you feel you're literally, you're right there in the first century A.D. with Christ. I recommend it to, to you, but this is an artist who brings it into the present. Or I've spoken about Rudyard Kipling's uh, short story, which he wrote um, as he reflected on the death of his son in World War One. Rudyard Kipling's story, The Gardener. <clears throat> this is as uh, powerful a synthetic uh, bringing together of the theme of... Uh, of absolution, mercy, tender grace, and resurrection directly in connection with the figure of Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth, whose name is never used in the story. Kipling's story, The Gardener. You, you, this is the Wirkungsgeschichte. This is the old story told currently. You'll see it in a character in Inge's last novel, My Son is a Splendid Driver, a woman who's had a most uh, tragic, conflicted, deceptive, and really... Uh, self-abusive, uh, you can say all sorts of things about it. it's all there, uh, a woman who uh, has really crushed herself and uh, through a man, uh, uh, the wrong kind of angry man, and then she gets involved in AA because uh, the root problem becomes uh, alcohol, and uh, Inge's uh, talk about her as a genuine uh, one of the world, one of Christ's miracles, one of Christ's living miracles, his bringing together of the AA model and Jesus Christ in relationship to this young woman he knows in Kansas, who he grows old with. I mean, she's as old as he is when they meet in much later years, and they have an instantaneous exchange of of being. Uh, that uh, that is Christ in in living uh, incarnation. Let me give a few other examples, actually. Um, Dostoevsky, Kipling, Inge, they're many. They're not as many as there might be, but they're many. Uh, Michael Waltari's book, uh, The Secret of the Kingdom, with this unbelievably relapsing alcoholic uh, man totally 
shooting himself in the foot, as we say today, with women, especially the wrong one, and missing the right one, and getting with the wrong one again and again and again and again, and relapsing in the first century, who meets Christ in the 40 days between Christ's uh, resurrection and Christ's ascension. And he has these bizarre encounters with uh, with the risen Christ. They are bizarre. Michael Waltari's book, The Secret of the Kingdom, is again a kind of a, it, it really is an engagement with uh, Christ in the New Testament scholarship form. Waltari has done his homework, and he was a theological student before he went to Paris. He was intending himself for the Lutheran ministry, but uh, he has such a hold on human nature, and he, this this poor character is so both wonderful and completely uh, falling off the wagon in especially with the opposite sex again and again and again that uh, Waltari has something very important to teach us it's not quite perhaps on the same exact um uh, literary level as Quovatis by Henry Sinkovitz, but in a way it's a little deeper because it's a little less uh, it's a little less Catholic, uh, it's a little less saintly. And I want to conclude with Irvin S. Cobb, and here I quote my friend Lloyd Fonville, who is uh, as a writer, a professional writer of novels and short stories, is uh, so um, reminds me all the time of uh, the parables that Christ taught in parables, and uh, we have a man who taught in parables in Irvin S. Cobb, about whom I've spoken on this podcast before, the Kentucky-born, New York City-based, and Hollywood-later-based writer of short stories for the Saturday Evening Post, and then he became a national figure. He actually hosted the Academy Awards once. Irvin S. Cobb, now sadly neglected, whose uh, many of whose stories, I would say two-thirds or at least 50% of his stories, and I like to think that I've read them all, at least all the ones that I've been able to find. I haven't, I'm sure, but it feels like a great many of his short stories, at least 50% are parables uh, of Christ, the, from Christ, but t- told in small-town Kentucky guys about Paducah, Kentucky, or um, his experience in the suburbs of New York, or his life uh, as, a, uh, as a traveling celebrity in the United States. Uh, he even talks about them. He constantly, he'll, he'll refer to the blending of the parables. This is a parable, and when you read it, it's a parable in Kentucky small town dress in sort of 1880 uh, of what Christ was talking about in St. Matthew and St. Luke. It is something. Uh, So Irvin S. Cobb brought uh, the shadowy figure of Christ into a lifetime of work. So here's Dave Mason's song, A Heartache, a Shadow, a Lifetime. The heartache was that most of the work is unacknowledged psychic conflict, an attempt to master an insuperable personal wound stemming from the kind of heavy law Christianity that so many people used to get. And um, this has created uh, a tremendous wound that much of New Testament scholarship, and in my experience in many different countries uh, of doing this professionally um, and observing it in its profession, uh, has cast a, a kind of heartache over my 45 years of history. A shadow in that the sources themselves are shadowy, and yet there is still something worth studying in the uh, a great number of the sayings and attitudes and expressions and uh, encounters of uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And finally, a lifetime of hope in that figure's uh, impact in you and on me, pastorally, psychically, personally, because these guys who studied it, they, 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 there is an answer to these questions. 
there's, I can honestly say as someone who's had a lot of conflicts in a slightly different direction, but still conflicts, there is hope. There is an answer to these conflicts, and it has an enormous amount to do with the acceptance and the mercy and the grace of Christ Jesus as we read about him in the New Testament. And uh, we can do well to begin by looking at how some great artistic muses have uh, internalized these words and then using that as a stepping-off point for our own uh, very uh, uh, deeply uh, needy and hungering assimilation of the negativity of our own lives. Here's Dave Mason. Summer breeze, you soothe away the blues 